Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, well, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to another Emerging Revolutionary War Revelry. Uh, My name is Dan Welch, and um, tonight we have with us a very exciting presentation and guest, uh, Andrew Outen. Uh, Before I turn the reins over to him tonight, uh, we've been talking a little bit before we went live here. You're in for one heck of an evening. Um, Can't wait to get the program started, but I just want to give you all some information about some stuff going on uh, at ERW. Uh, Our next uh, revelry will be on January 22nd, two weeks from tonight. We're going to have author Gene Prochnow to discuss his new book on William Hunter, Finding Free Speech, a British soldier's son who became an early American. Uh, So join us for two weeks uh, again for that exciting program. January 22nd at 7 p.m. will be our next ERW uh, revelry. Uh, If you are still considering coming on our bus tour, it'll be our third annual bus tour this year in November of 2023. Uh, We're gonna be heading down to the Southern Campaigns and checking out uh, Charleston. We are are going through tickets quite quickly, Uh, a little over uh, a dozen tickets left. So if this is something you are interested in, you're you're wavering about, you have questions about before you commit, please reach out to us on Facebook or uh, all of our other social media channels or the blog with any questions you may have because you are not going to want to miss this tour. Um, Working with uh, Mark Malloy and Rob Orson on some of the planning details of where we're gonna take you and what you're going to see, uh, you're going to see some pretty exclusive stuff that a lot of folks uh, will have um, literally, if you've been to Charleston, walked right by and never knew it's, it's Rev War history. But we're going to be going to a lot of other great sites. And to uh, help you get ready for the tour, um, Mark Malloy's book, To the Last Extremity, on the siege of Charleston and the battles for Charleston is due out here in just a couple months in April of 2023. Um, As Emerging Revolutionary 
uh, War's new book series editor. Uh, I've been hard at work with Mark and uh, all the fine folks at Savas Beatty uh, to get that book uh, through the final stages and into your hands. So that's something you might want to pre-order if you're coming on the tour. If not, and you want to learn more about uh, Charleston during the Revolutionary War. It's an awesome, awesome manuscript and can't wait for you all to be able to read it uh, and learn a little bit more from ERW historian Mark Malloy. And as always, please check back with us on the uh, ERW blog. A lot of great content going up here in the new year. So with that, I'm going to introduce to you our speaker tonight, uh, Andrew Outen. Uh, Andrew is going to present on a fascinating topic. Um, he's going to tell you a little bit more about how he got into it, but we're going to be looking at maps this evening, which in military history, cartography and good maps is important not only to those who are uh, on the field fighting those battles and waging those campaigns, but for us military historians generations later as we try to, uh, to understand what happened during these pivotal moments. So, uh, Andrew, I'm going to turn it over to you and uh, tell us a little bit more about how you got into this topic and take it away. Sure. Thank you, Dan. And uh, thank you to everybody over at uh, ERW uh, for the opportunity to speak tonight on uh, what I hope everybody out there will find uh, fascinating, as fascinating as I do. I'm kind of on a crusade, as I mentioned to Dan earlier. Um, we're going to be discussing uh, two maps tonight, uh, but we're going to use quite a few other maps to, uh, to tell the story. Um, I have been at the Society of the Cincinnati, the American Revolution Institute of the Society of the Cincinnati as its historical programs manager for a little over a year now. I started um, at the end of October last year. And uh, upon my arrival, uh, our library director, um, some of you may know her. I'm not surprised if a lot of people don't know her out there because she seems to know everybody in the world, Ellen Clark. Um, she approached me and said we had these two uh, maps on Brandywine and uh, that were produced by William Faden. And um, I, I'm very familiar with the 1778 one. That's like the all over the world. Everybody who's seen a map on Brandywine has probably seen that map. Uh, but she whipped out the 1784 one that was produced, un unusually reproduced uh, with edits and changes um, six years later in 1784. So uh, a few months ago, um, if you're not familiar with our programming over at the ARI, we do uh, Lunch Bite Object Talks every month where the staff gets to go into our museum collections, our library collections, essentially pick their be kids in candy shops, pick their favorite um, object to talk about, and they give a 20 to 25 minute presentation um, on that object. So uh, it being the 245th anniversary of the Battle of Brandywine, naturally I chose to discuss the the maps, uh, the Faden maps. So um, what I thought was going to be a very easy presentation, I, I worked at Brandywine for nearly 10 years, uh, the uh, Brandywine for the Brandywine Battlefield Park Associates and very familiar with the battle, uh, turned into a whole goose chase. Um, so it was not a e an easy comparison at all. Um, as I was telling you, Dan, before this, it was just rabbit hole after rabbit hole after rabbit hole. You think you've figured out one thing and it just leads to another. So we're gonna get into that tonight. And I do have to tell everybody that this is still a work in progress. We are nearing the completion. Um, if you saw the lunch bite a few months ago, I do have a lot more stuff to tell you tonight uh, that I figured out in the last couple of months. So um, yeah, excited to share uh, where I'm at so far on this project. So I will go ahead and share. Yeah, Andrew's gonna be sharing his screen here. So just bear with him for a second. Um, 
And uh, for those of you joining us this evening, if you do have any questions for Andrew during the program, just drop them in the chat below. And at the end of, of Andrew's talk, we'll have an opportunity uh, for some Q&A to dive or, or dig a little further into this. So uh, take it away, Andrew. Cool. Hey, hey, everybody, can you see my screen? We good? Very good. Okay. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, we are going to be discussing tonight uh, two maps. Uh, produced by William Faden. One on the left is uh, produced in 1778, and the other one is um, produced six years later, unusually, in 1784. And both of them obviously are depicting the Battle of Brandywine. So I kind of went into the interest uh, and what motivated me to get involved with this. And I, again, I'm on a crusade here. So uh, let's get right into it. Um, so for those of you who aren't familiar with William Faden, he was... Um, one of the most prolific and well-respected uh, British cartographers in the late 18th century and early 19th century. Um, essentially, throughout his career, he created over 300 maps, atlases, military plans, uh, but his claim to fame really stemmed from his maps that, depict, uh, that depicted major events uh, from the, Amer uh, the American Revolution. So he took full advantage of, of the, the eight-year conflict. Um, and so today, we have frontline press that offers instantaneous video images and major events and conflicts going on throughout the globe. And in the 18th century, they didn't have that. So that's where Fadden came in and really took advantage of the situation. Um, the British public was very curious about what was going on across the, the Atlantic in North America, and they relied on newspaper accounts and other sources of information to get that news as quickly as possible. Um, and again, Fadden took, Fadden took full advantage of that, capitalized on it, um, and he kept this British public informed throughout that eight-year uh, conflict as to what was transpiring across uh, the Atlantic. So uh, on one such uh, one such map, again, was Faden's 1778 commemoration map uh, pictured on the left, depicting uh, the British victory at Brandywine. Um, again, this map was unusually reproduced six years later in 1784, and that is pictured again on the right. Uh, but before we discuss anything about these maps, the battle, uh, its sources, it's really important to understand uh, Faden's process uh, and how he produced these maps. Uh, since he never stepped foot in North America, he had to rely on various sources of information, such as firsthand sketches, uh, plans, manuscripts, accounts uh, from people who were actually there. So let's talk about who these people were and how Faden would typically obtain this information uh, to produce these Rev War maps. Uh, so one of Faden's uh, most useful outlets came from his partnership with a gentleman named Thomas Jeffries Jr., who was the son of another very influential 18th century map maker, Thomas Jeffries Sr. Uh, Thomas Jeffries Sr. is depicted in the portrait on the right, and he really revolutionized 18th century cartography. Uh, like Faden, whose notoriety stemmed from the Revolutionary War, Thomas Jeffries Sr. is uh, going to obtain his status from another conflict, the the prior conflict to the uh, to the American Revolution, uh, the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, but he really capitalized on the post during the post year uh, war years, uh, because obviously with Great Britain's major victory uh, at the end of that war, they are going to gain an extensive uh, amount of new territories, and Jeffries is going to take full advantage of his abilities to map out um, all of those new territories. Um, so. 
that eventually led Jeffrey Sr. to uh, in obtaining his appointment as geographer of the king or to the king, excuse me. Um, and that's going to be a title that you'll hear me say throughout the, the various stages of this presentation. Um, but just to clarify, that title, the geographer to the king, may seem to imply some sort of royal authority, uh, but in reality, it offered no monetary compensation from parliament or the king. And it was really just essentially a highly regarded title within that small community of cartographers uh, in England. Uh, but the one power that it did allow the bearer uh, was exclusive access to retail maps to the royal family. So um, it did give them that privilege. But other than that, it was just a title. But if you were a cartographer, you wanted that title. Um, so following the death of uh, Thomas Jeffrey Sr. in 1771, his son Jeffreys Jr. is going to inherit the title um, and the firm. But prior to that, uh, Faden's father, uh, who was a wealthy and well-known London printer, was able to secure Faden, his son, as a partner in the Jeffreys firm, which was crucial. Um, and But also, you have Jeffreys Jr., who is not really interested in carrying on his father's legacy. So by 1776, Faden takes full ownership of the Jeffreys firm, and with that, he gets the entire Jeffreys map collection. So that's really going to put him high up um, in terms of um, a foundation compared to other uh, cartographers in England and London at the time. Um, so another key source of, of Faden's, especially throughout the American Revolution, uh, was his vast network of contacts that was comprised of officers, engineers, and surveyors uh, throughout the British military, particularly the Army. Uh, in any nation's modern military surveys, manuscripts, or manuscripts were, uh, that are produced during a war on the front um, are kind of classified these days. But um, back then, not so much. Um, Fadden had full access to this because these officers uh, were enjoying the fact that there were no defined policies concerning the publication of materials from official surveys or anything like that. And very few rules were put in place to stop these officers from having their surveys published during their time of service. Um, so with that way of employing private capital with government property, surveys and maps sent from officers and engineers who were fighting in North America acted as some of the best sources for Faden uh, to produce his maps during uh, that war. So when Faden received or compiled his uh, several sources or his one source, uh, he would begin by working up a draft, and then he would add his own branding aesthetics, such as an elaborate cartouche uh, with the map's title, a key, a scale to denote distances, uh, he would place troop positions, and he would obviously have to make sense of it all, so he would add a description to explain the map's uh, various depictions. And once that final draft was established, Fadden would then engrave it uh, onto a copper plate that he would then use to print the maps on a mass scale. Uh, so this was all accomplished uh, through Fadden's, in, or Fadden's employment of skilled craftsmen who each played an integral role throughout the production process. So every guy had his, his own job um, and it was, you know, not exactly organized into assembly line, but you get the point. Um, but notwithstanding the time it took to get this information across the Atlantic, let alone the time it took to produce the maps, uh, Faden's success in high regard really stemmed again from his ability to produce these maps of the recent battles or events very quickly and shortly after they'd taken place. Um, so the maps of Brandywine that we're going to discuss tonight went through the same process. Um, but before we analyze and discuss them, I would be remiss if 
I assumed that everybody knew about the Battle of Brandywine. So if you do know about it, just bear with me. If you don't, buckle up. Um, so here's your three-minute crash course on the Battle of Brandywine. Um, so the Battle of Brandywine, uh, the, sing the largest single-day land engagement of the American Revolutionary War, um, largest in terms of not just we don't really talk just about the soldiers, but the amount of land that it encompassed. Um, if you look at a modern map, the, the Brandywine battlefield landscape today makes up about 35,000 acres spread across 15 different municipalities. So it is a large, large landscape to cover. Um, where I uh, formerly was employed at uh, Brandywine Battlefield Park, uh, that was just a 52-acre park that was really just the heart of Washington's encampment uh, for the two days before the battle. It's also minor skirmishing after uh, in the latter part of the day. Uh, but other than that, the real fighting took place to the west and the north of it. Um, so I can't tell you how many people used to come in thinking that you know, close to 30,000 soldiers squared off on this 52-acre box when in reality that wasn't the case at all. Um, but essentially, this is Washington's attempt to stop the Crown forces under uh, Sir William Howe from accessing Philadelphia. Um, up until September 9th, Washington and Howe had been playing this, you know, outflanking, let's see who can get around who game. Uh, Howe had just landed his troops a few weeks before at the head of Elk in Maryland, marched about 45 miles north uh, to get to Kennett Square, trying to get around Washington's position in Wilmington. When Washington realized he was going to get outmaneuvered with no uh, offering no resistance to how getting into Philadelphia, he pulled his men back and moved them north and stationed them at a point known as Chad's Ford, uh, which is where the main thoroughfare, thoroughfare, the last avenue of approach for how to get into Philadelphia across the Brandywine, Washington knew that Hal had to go down that road to get to Philadelphia and he was going to stop him. So um, that's where this, that's why this major battle happens uh, where it does. So General Howe uh, is in Kennett Square on September 10th, the night, the night before the battle. Washington is there as early as September 9th. So he's there for two days. He prepares his defenses, makeshift earthworks, um, and he's going to fortify the eastern heights of the Brandywine. Now, going up and down the Brandywine River are several crossing points known as fords. And these fords are just essential, essentially shallow points in the water to get from point A to point B on the other side. There were no bridges or anything like that. So you needed to go to these fords to get across the river. Now, Washington, again, focusing his main force, his defensive stand at Chad's Ford, He's also going to fortify the forts to the south and the north, and his defensive line is going to stretch um, almost uh, seven miles, seven to eight miles. Um, so he guards eight forts, but Washington fails to guard two other forts, which are Trimble's and Jeffrey's forts. And if you look at the top of the map here, you'll see uh, Trimble's forts and Jeffrey's forts on the forks of the Brandywine, the western and the eastern branches. And a lot of there's over the years. Uh, surrounding the interpretation of the battle. Some historians claim that Washington had no idea about these two forts or that Washington just didn't think that the British were going to march up that far from Kennett Square because it, all in all, it was around 17 miles. Um, but at the end of the day, Washington failed to guard those two forts. Hal knew all about them. He got his information from the local population. He is going to take full advantage of it. He splits his forces in Kennett Square to um, 
implement this outflanking maneuver. He gives command of uh, around 6,500 troops, uh, six to 6,500 uh, troops to um, a, a Lieutenant General Wilhelm von Knipphausen, who is Howe's senior most Hessian officer. Um, and his job is to just march straight at Washington's defenses at Chad's Ford, create as much noise as possible, spread his uh, men out as as wide as possible to create these illusion that there are more men out there than there really are. Essentially, he just wants Washington thinking the entire British force is out in front of him. Uh, that gives time, meanwhile, for General Howe to march north on that outflanking maneuver. He's got the flower of the British Army with him, the guards, the grenadiers, the light infantry. He knows that he needs these guys to make this long march. So he takes them all the way up and manages to get around uh, across those two fords, and uh, the idea is to come up behind Washington, squash him in, and the war ends in southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, now, Knipphausen does his job well. He's harassed for about three hours in the morning by William Maxwell's light infantry, takes a beating, slows slow as a snail getting to where he needs to go, but he does eventually make it to Chad's Ford, and he does, him and Washington have this massive cannonade that lasts well into the mid-afternoon hours. And uh, during that time, Washington is frantically trying to get a grasp on the situation. He's got scouts riding up and down the countryside, and the one thing that's really making his head spin is he's getting all these contradicting intelligence reports. We have reports coming in from the north saying, I just saw a large body of the, ed uh, body of the enemy moving north. Uh, you only have a small portion of the army in front of you. So Washington goes to attack across the river, but then gets another report that says, no, no, I was up there for X amount of hours and didn't see a, a single soldier. So Washington pulls back, his head spinning all day. So it wasn't until about two o'clock in the afternoon when he gets that final confirmation from one of his uh, light dragoon officers, Theodore, Colonel Theodore Bland, and Washington has that oh no moment of the day. So he has to scramble to move three of his major divisions under Generals Adam Stephen, uh, William Alexander Sterling, and John Sullivan out of the position that they're in at Chad's Ford, in and around Chad's Ford, and move them north to try to stop this larger British force that's coming down from behind them. And so he does this by first dispatching Adam Stephen and William Alexander Sterling to Birmingham Hill, which is a high piece of ground directly behind uh, a place known as the Birmingham Friends Meeting House. Quaker Meeting House, a lot of Quakers in this area at the time, unfortunately, they got caught up in the fray too. It's a whole different story for a whole different day. Uh, but the third division that he's going to tack on, who ultimately is to take command, is John Sullivan's guys. Well, due to incompetent leadership, all sorts of different problems, John Sullivan, long story short, finds himself completely out of position, and there is a major gap in between Sterling's left, Sullivan's right, and that is not good when the British are coming down with the flower of their army. And directly across from Sullivan are the Royal Guards, the the elite of the British uh, forces, and on their left are the elite British grenadiers. Um, so shockingly, the Americans, given the the, the chaos, um, they do put up one heck of a defense, but starting with Sullivan, it's like dominoes. They go from left to right, all the divisions start to break. Knipphausen's launching his attack, Howe's uh, and Cornwallis' attack to the north is his cue to cross. The entire American uh, line lines are swinging to the uh, east like a door. There's your Gettysburg reference uh, for Chamberlain. Um, and so uh, Washington realizes that he cannot overcome, and he has to uh, try to save the day here. And that comes in the form of Nathaniel Green, who is being held in reserve down at Chad's Ford. Uh, Washington orders Green's uh, division to move to the northeast, and they set up the American rear guard. And you can see all the way to the right, that semicircle formation. 
they do this flawlessly. Not only do they make the make it to um, their their location, that location in a matter, it's three miles in a matter of around 35 minutes, and they're still studying this at military institutions today. Um, but he is going to set up one deadly trap and using the terrain to his advantage. The British who are pursuing the retreating soldiers from Birmingham Hill, they waltz right into it. Hal's pursuit is brought to a screeching halt and that on top of the the long, tedious marching all day in the heat, uh, Hal calls it quits. And that's going to be what allows on top of a makeshift cavalry charge by Kazimir Pulaski, Washington's army to escape out of the area. So the British camp out for five days after the battle. Um, and that's the Battle of Brandywine. So 14 hours long. Um, and an American defeat, a uh, major victory for the British. So now that you're all experts on the Battle of Brandywine and can now properly judge these maps, uh, let's start uh, by analyzing the first one, uh, which is entitled The Battle of Brandywine in which the rebels were defeated September 11th, 1777 by the army under the command of General Sir William Howe produced by Faden on April 13th, 1778. Now, when we first look at it, you can easily see that it shows two explanations of the battle, one for the northern portion uh, pertaining to Cornwallis's column and the operations of the column under the command of His Excellency Lieutenant General Knipphausen, which is engraved from a plan drawn on the spot by S.W. Werner, Lieutenant of the Hessian Artillery. Now, to note, uh, Faden and other cartographers consistently used uh, words such as drawn on the spot. This added a little bit of credibility to their maps uh, if they knew that there were some errors or kind of pieced together um, last minute uh, very hastily. So uh, the that was very common to, to say things like that in the 18th century on maps. Um, so for this map, we can definitively say that its overall topographical survey stems from uh, Captain John Montresor, who was the most qualified engineer within the British Army from the outset of the war in 1775. Aside from a brief period uh, where he was superseded as the chief engineer by Captain Matthew Dixon from 1776 through early 77, Montresor held the title of chief engineer from the opening shots of the war until the time of... Um, he went back to England in October of 1778. Now, in the days following the Battle of Brandywine, uh, the British camped, like I said, in the area for five days. And during that time, accounts show that multiple engineers, draftsmen, surveyors uh, scoured the, the vast battlefield landscape to make note of the battlegrounds in which they just fought on. And Montresor's journal, um, uh, it, there's an entry dated September 14th that reflects this. Uh, he wrote, persons during the campaign were constantly employed under the chief engineer in surveying the roads, the army marches, and their encampments and fields of battle. This is confirmed by another well-known British engineer who would have been Arch um, who would have been Montresor's uh, right-hand guy. Uh, his name is uh, Captain Archibald Robertson, who in his diary entry on September 15th wrote that for three days employed in taking a sketch of the battleground where the Battle of Brandywine was fought. So these engineers were busy um, at the orders of Montresor. Now, in the Library of Congress, there are four drafts of the 1778 Brandywine map produced by Faden, um, and they're all pictured here. Um, very, that they show various stages of the design process. Um, if you can see the full view of them um, in person, I couldn't fit all of them on here. You know, the explanations are moving around. Faden's obviously playing with it all. Um, now, recently, uh, there was uh, one that was brought to my attention that is actually Hal's uh, 
it's a fifth one that's housed in Cornell University's library. Um, but that is its author in their notes, according to their notes, is listed as anonymous. Um, but when you put the si them side by side, you can obviously and very clearly see um, that this is Faden's 1778 map. Um, the only difference is if you look at the bottom, you'll see that the left Cornell manuscript map is going to be um, missing the published according to Act of Parliament by William Fadden, Charing Cross, April 13th, 1778. Um, and that's important because um, that would have only been on the printed version because that is your 18th century copyright, essentially. Um, up until 1768, cartographers couldn't put any form of copyright on their maps. But uh, according to the original Copyright Act passed by Parliament in 1734, that only covered um, publications such as books and pamphlets. Um, but by 1768, these cartographers are able to do this now. So that is Faden's uh, copyright. Um, and that is going to tell you that this is going to be ready to, this is map is essentially the final draft that's ready to go off to the printer, um, which will give you the, the last, um, the final version, the final uh, that would have been mass produced. Um, so out of those, the five maps that I showed you before, uh, these two are housed again at the Library of Congress and in their notes, they're, they're solely uh, attributed to John Montresor uh, according to the Library of Congress's records. So of those two maps, this one is noted to have his name on the reverse side of the draft itself. So this preliminary draft shows the topographical survey in watercolor, an explanation on the right, obviously, the early stages of a title box, which is kind of sort of patched on the top there. And then there are other notes pertaining to the various regiments of the British forces in the Northern Theater that you can see that are uh, angled differently um, at the top. So like the others, it also appears to show the beginning stages of troop placements in that section of the battlefield. Um, but notice how that, that that ink is darker and more defined compared to the watercolor of the, uh, that was used to do the topographical survey. So it, with that, if the Library of Congress's sole attributions to Montresor are correct, that would imply that he did all of that. He did the explanation. He did uh, the troop placements and everything that you see on this map. Um, so let's get a closer look. So to really figure out who was responsible for this stuff, um, the, the true placements and the explanations and stuff, we're going to use the Birmingham Meeting House as a reference point, and that is circled here in red. And one can also see with the arrow uh, the, the placement of troops that denote uh, the three divisions uh, at Birmingham Hill, the three American divisions. Now, you can see that the three American divisions are denoted as being north and forward of the Birmingham Friends Meeting House. Now, according to Montresor's accounts, his journal entries, his memorandum of the battle that was uh, written the day after, he wrote an extensive uh, uh, entry in his journal on September 11th, the night after the, uh, right after the battle. It is highly doubtful that Montresor would have put the three American divisions right there. Uh, because according to his accounts, it totally contradicts what 
he's writing about and what's on this map. Um, as I said, the, the, the memorandum, very lengthy, goes into great detail. So does the account, the journal account. Um, and in the memorandum regarding the Americans' position on Birmingham Hill, Montresor referred to it as a most advantageous position on the heights in the rear of Birmingham Meeting House with the village of Dilworth on their right. Again, this map clearly shows that the Americans are placed in front of the meeting house. Montresor being a skilled engineer and a participant in, the, in this portion of the battle uh, that was with Cornwallis, he definitely would have known better to place these uh, American troops there. Um, so it implies that Montresor isn't responsible for this. Um, again, he would have totally known better and he was actually there to witness these troops. So that implies more so of Fadden's work, uh, Faden's work. And so the solo attribution is not correct at all. Um, just because his name's on the reverso of the, the draft doesn't exactly mean that he was the one who did it. It could very well be the case that as Fadden compiled his maps, his drafts, his surveys from multiple sources, it could have just been a a task of organizing, a labeling of where the source came from. Um, but this would not have been Montresor. He would have definitely known better to do that. Um, so if Faden clearly, since he clearly wasn't getting his information from Montresor or Montresor itself, the chief engineer, that raises the next question on where was he getting the explanation of Cornwallis's column in the Northern Theater? And how was he placing these troops? What What, what was uh, prompting him to do that. Um, so news from Brandywine had started to reach the eyes of the British public as early as the middle of October. Um, but those sources were not descriptive. They really only indicated that engagement had taken place and they didn't offer any further detail. Um, but on December 2nd, however, the London Gazette published by authority, the first detailed uh, article that gave a really in-depth look and overview of the Battle of Brandywine. And it actually used General Howe's report that was sent to George Germain um, to, to inform the public of what was going on. Now, the London Gazette is one of the official government journals or government newspapers in Great Britain. Still is, it has been, it, it apparently claims to be uh, one of the oldest continuously published newspapers that goes back to 1665 when it was originally the Oxford Gazette. Um, and you would find everything that had to do with the king decrees. Um, you would see uh, the granting of royal assents to bills that were passed in the UK and Scottish parliaments. Um, but you would also see all the accounts that were coming across from across the Atlantic relating to major engagements in the American Revolution. You would see notices of military commissions, promotions of officers, um, and you would even see some bankruptcy notices for companies in there. So you had it all in the London Gazette. So that was the most credible source coming out of England at that time. Um, and this is going to be the key to really finding out Fadden's source here, because this is Fadden's source. Um, now, the, the article begins with yesterday morning, Major Kyler, Cornelius Kyler, who was an aide to uh, General uh, Sir William Howe, arrived in Phil from Philadelphia with the dispatches to Lord George Germain, of which the following copies are extracts. So I'm going to read you what this report says about Cornwallis's, and we're going to compare it to uh, Faden's uh, explanation on the 78 map. 
so it's it reads the other column under the command of Lord Cornwallis, Major General Gray, Brigadier Generals Matthew and Agnew, consisting of the mounted and dismounted chasseurs, two squadrons of the 16th Light Dragoons, two battalions of light infantry, two battalions of guards, the third and fourth brigades with four light 12 pounders, and the artillery of the brigades marched about 12 miles to the forks of the Brandywine, crossed the first branch at Trimble's Ford and the second at Jeffrey's Fords about two o'clock in the afternoon taking from thence the road to Dilworth in order to turn the enemy's right at Chad's Ford. General Washington, having intelligence of this movement about noon, detached General Sullivan to his right with near 10,000 men who took a strong position on the commanding ground above Birmingham Church with his left near, to, uh, near the Brandywine, both flanks being covered by very thick woods and his artillery advantageously disposed. As soon as this was observed, uh, which was about four o'clock, the king's troops advanced in three columns and upon approaching the enemy formed the line with the right towards the Brandywine. The guards being upon the right and the British grenadiers upon their left, supported by the Hessian grenadiers in the second line. To the left of the center were the two battalions of light infantry with the Hessian and Anspach chasseurs, supported by the 4th Brigade, the 3rd Brigade formed the reserve. Lord Cornwallis, having formed the line, the light infantry and chasseurs began the attack. The guards and grenadiers instantly advanced from the right, the whole under a heavy fire of artillery and musketry, but they pushed on with, with, with impetuosity not to be sustained by the enemy, who falling back into the woods in their rear, the king's troops entered with them and pursued them closely for near two miles. After the success, a part of the enemy's right took a second position in a wood about a half a mile from Dilworth, from whence the second light infantry and chasseurs soon dislodged them, and from this time they did not rally again in force. The first grenadiers, the Hessian grenadiers and the guards, having in, having in pursuit got entangled in very thick woods, were no farther engaged during that day. The, light, the second light infantry, the second grenadiers and the fourth brigade moved forward a mile beyond Dilworth, where they attacked a corps of the enemy that had not been before engaged and were strongly posted to cover the retreat of their army by the roads from Chad's Ford to Chester and Wilmington which corps not being forced until after dark when the troops had undergone much fatigue and a march of 17 miles besides they what they had they supported since the commencement of the attack the enemy's army escaped a total overthrow that must have been the consequence of an hour's more daylight the third brigade was not brought into action but was kept in reserve in the rear of the fourth brigade it not being known before it was dark how far lieutenant general knipphausen's attack had succeeded nor was there an opportunity of employing cavalry so you can see here that when comparing Faden's explanation with Howe's report from the article published in the London Gazette, the first full account of the Battle of Brandywine published under authority, uh, it is blatantly obvious that Faden not only used it as the basis for his map's explanation surrounding this portion of the battle, but also how he placed the troops on the map itself. So again, we're going to take a look at the Birmingham Meeting House, which is that reference point that we looked at before. But let's use the newspaper article to really understand this. So the portion of the article that reads, General Washington having intelligence of this movement about noon, detached General Sullivan to his right with near 10,000 men who took a strong position on the commanding ground above Birmingham Church with his left near the Brandywine. Now to Faden, a map maker who's looks at maps in the matter of north is up, south is down, east is right, west is left, the word above clearly implied to him that Sullivan's men were north of the meeting house. 
Um, but to Montresor or any other British participant, especially General Howe, who's writing the report, above doesn't imply the same direction. To them, above is referring to the high ground behind the Birmingham meeting house that the American uh, forces occupied, Birmingham Hill. Uh, technically, that's above the meeting house, but just from behind. Now, Additionally, we can see that Howe's report in the Gazette reads, the 2nd Light Infantry, 2nd Grenadiers, and 4th Brigade move forward a mile beyond Dilworth. Again, thinking like a cartographer, if you look at it, if you look at the H's that um, denote these on the map, Faden did show that this action took place beyond Dilworth, but again, to the north. Uh, to the British participants, again, however, beyond Dilworth would have been south of the village, as again, they were attacking from the north. Um, so Faden is actually going to really take this information. He's got the credible information, but he's totally misinterpreting it uh, when he's making this map. Um, and he creates total inaccuracies because of it. Um, so this is going to also include, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of, my, ahead of myself. So we have um, the most accurate portion of the map at the bottom is going to be um, the description of the day's actions with Knipphausen's column. And again, that is coming from a plan drawn on the spot from an S.W. Werner, when in fact it actually should have been F.W. Werner um, for Frederick Wilhelm Werner, who was a first lieutenant in the Hessian Field Artillery Corps. Um, he was also very closely attached to Knipphausen's staff. Uh, Werner was appointed a, as brigade adjutant of the Hessian Artillery Corps before coming to America. He initially came over with General Leopold von Heister on January 30th, 1776, um, and that's when he gets his first major role as the brigade adjutant. Uh, von Heister was the first overall commander uh, of the Hessian forces in America before Knipphausen took over um, in 1777. Uh, after Brandywine, Werner was promoted to captain on February 9th, 1778, followed by another promotion in 1779 as brigade major. So he was held in high regard in the eyes of Knipphausen. Uh, and there are letters and accounts going back and forth between Knipphausen and the Landgraf of Hesse Castle, Frederick II, um, that reflect this. Uh, when he was appointed brigade major, Knipphausen penned to the Landgraf that Captain Werner of the Honorable Artillery Corps has been assisting the same way. He was talking about another guy who was of good conduct before this, um, assisting the same way in his graciously appointed capacity of brigade adjutant and has always shown great readiness and special ability in conducting any business matters which have occurred. Um, it's further reflected when uh, Knipphausen writes a sole specific letter, um, a designated letter to uh, the Landgraf informing him that Werner unfortunately had passed away of illness in New York in 1781. Um, he says he has uh, always discharged his duties faithfully and well to my satisfaction and with great willingness and diligence. And he actually asked for uh, his Serene Highness's, uh, the Landgraf, his grace in helping out the widow and his three young children. So Werner was, he was well-respected in the Hessian Artillery Corps and he, he knew what he was doing. Um, so we see this being the map that, or the sketch, excuse me, um, the drawing that influences how Faden 
positions the troops, and this is what he uses for Knipphausen's portion of the battle. Um, and throughout his time in America, Werner was uh, not only thought of as a um, a well-respected officer in the military, but he was a well-respected artist as well. Um, he was well known for his sketching and reporting abilities uh, throughout the war, his time in America, uh, so much that in that King George III's birthday celebration in, in New York in 1777, he was actually tasked with sketching and providing descriptions of the celebration, which included this lavish dinner and ball and were capped off with fireworks at the end of the night. So, um, you know, he had to have been pretty good at, at, uh, at sketching. And you can see here, um, it, it's pretty accurate, um, aside from a few um, things that we'll talk about here uh, in a second. So the first flaw that we see with this, aside from, again, somewhat accurate, mostly accurate, but there are some flaws, um, is his directional orientation. And this is understandable, uh, as it shows how Werner could have perceived his own movements throughout the day uh, and the five-day encampment afterwards. Uh, what gives this away the most is Werner's compass that provides terrible misdirection as as what is noted as north on the map is in most cases actually east and west. Uh, the direction of the Great Nottingham Road or modern day Route 1, if you're familiar with that area of Pennsylvania, uh, that's the road that Knipphausen's column marched from Kennett to Chad's Ford. That runs east to west. And according to the compass, it's correctly depicted here uh, as such. But everything else is off and reflects a directional orientation of north and south. So why is this? Um, according to one Hessian officer's deep, very detailed account of the battle, the Hessian artillery uh, that was in Knipphausen's column broke off from the rest of the column to go with the commander of the Royal Artillery, General Samuel Cleveland, uh, on the to access the west side of the Brandywine at a location known as Britain's Ford. And to get there, um, and by the way, Britain's Ford is actually just one Ford north of Chad's Ford. So it's it's relatively close to Washington's where the rest of Knipphausen's men were going at Chad's Ford. Um, they broke off on a road that ran northeast and would have taken them directly to um, Britain's Ford. And to better visualize this, we have, thanks to the Chester County Archives, an 18th century roadmap that would have showed you what all the roads in the 18th century uh, in, in Chester County would have looked like. Uh, so the 1743 road that you see running east to west is the Great Nottingham Road. So that was Knipphausen's main avenue of approach to get to Chad's Ford. Now, Werner and the rest of the, uh, the bulk of the Royal Artillery are going to branch off to the north on that 1760 road to access Britain's Ford. So again, he's seeing it as the way that he moved. So he would have been heading north in that direction. Um, so again, that explains the compass. Um, another thing that is totally wrong um, is the way that the, the Great Nottingham Road on the other side of the river actually curves around and, and heads to the left of this image here, um, which it doesn't curve. It, it's a straight shot. And um, so again, that's understandable. That's how Werner would have perceived this area of the battle. It's a very crude sketch, but it's very accurate in terms of the actual positions of the troops on the west side of the river during Knipphausen's faint throughout the morning. So that part, I, it's, it's fairly accurate, um, not so much the northern part of it. Um, so with all the drafts that we just looked at and we discussed all the errors, um, that resulted in the 1778 map, we can clearly see that 
Faden knew the importance of this battle and was really trying to get it right. Uh, he did it over and over again. Um, this was a major British victory. Uh, General Howe himself conveyed to the troops in the days after the battle the, that this battle would have, would be considered very important in the future. Um, you also have to keep in mind that this is before the uh, critical American victory at Saratoga and to some of the British and Hessian forces that are fighting and participating in the Battle of Brandywine, um, the war is almost over because this is a repeat of New York that happened a year before in 76 and Washington's running with his tail between his legs. He's on the run and all they need is one more blow to really bring this thing to an end. Um, so this was being celebrated in Great Britain and Faden knew the importance of this battle. So you can see through the number of drafts that he did know that uh, importance. Um, but as many drafts as he does, there's still so many errors. Um, and Faden actually realizes that too, later down the road. Um, so also housed in the Library of Congress with those drafts, uh, those copies of the drafts, um, is this engraver's proof, which you can see on the left-hand side. And this is dated from 1784. Um, it clearly shows that Faden attempted to correct the errors that we just looked at on the, his 1778 map. Um, and errors were common in the 18th century. I mean, nobody was perfect. I mean, he was getting his sources from thousands and thousands of miles away. Um, he was relying on conflicting sources. He was relying on compiled sources. Um, it's totally justified that you would have some errors. Um, corrections were common for maps like these. You would see minor adjustments, you know, deleting a word, adding a sentence, deleting a symbol to denote something. Uh, but these extensive corrections were not common. Uh, I mean, if you look at the map on the left compared to the one on the right, it's almost an entirely different map. I mean, he's moving everything around. The troop positions aren't even the same. Um, we have to ask the question, okay, what's prompting these changes? What information is he using to make these changes with? So uh, let's dive into this one. Uh, so to try to understand this, let's start by examining the differences between the two maps. So the first obviously changes are that Fadden crossed out the use of the word rebels. All right. You see that in all the, the descriptions and he replaces it with Americans and all the explanations uh, as well as the map's title. Uh, another obvious difference is that he changed the date from April 13th, 1778 to April 13th, 1784. Uh, it's important to note, interestingly enough, that four days prior on April 9th, 1784, Great Britain formally ratified the Treaty of Paris. So whether this change actually occurred on April 13th, 1784 might be unlikely, but the correction now reflects a date after the ratification of the treaty. And it could have influenced the change from rebels to Americans as obviously they're Americans now. It wouldn't be appropriate, nor would it be accurate uh, to call them rebels anymore. Uh, we also see that uh, he changed uh, or added geographer to the king uh, to his copyright as he was officially given that title in 1783, uh, taking it over from Thomas Jeffries Jr. Uh, finally, the explanation from Werner's sketch at the bottom doesn't change at all. So that's going to remain relatively the same, if not the same. Um, the most notable changes are going to come from the Northern action. Um, so when we look at that Northern theater of the battle, the note referencing 
Werner's responsibility for that section shifts to the top left. I mean, you can barely see it anymore, uh, along with the explanation of Knipphausen's actions. Um, another thing that remains uh, constant pertaining to Werner is uh, Faden's lack of understanding when it comes to his name, because he still uses S.W. Werner, not F.W. Werner. Um, through further examination, we can see from the proof that um, the majority of the updates from the northern section of the battle uh, are going to relate to the main action at Birmingham Hill um, and surrounding Dilworth. So uh, we can see that the topographical features, such as the trees and other hills, have been added. But again, the most notable on this proof is the troop placements and how they shift and uh, the overall description pertaining to the northern action. Um, so with this, we can now see that he's gotten it right. Uh, Cornwallis's column is deployed on either side of Birmingham Hill, when on the 1778 map, he only had them on the uh, the left side. If you're looking at the map uh, as you are now, he would have been, on, it was only on the left side, and that's obviously wrong. They were deployed across both sides. And so are the, uh, the troops that are in the assault. They are deployed on either side, excuse me, as well. So um, this is right. And now we can also see the British and the Americans are placed in the right position. So he, they are now behind the Birmingham Friends Meeting House um, and not in front of the Birmingham Friends Meeting House, um, as we discussed earlier. Another major change here is going to be uh, the true placements around Dilworth, which we talked about earlier, beyond Dilworth. That's not going to be the case anymore. Beyond Dilworth is, is in the actual uh, correct position now. Um, and we see really two different phases of the battle. So when we look at this portion, this is the actual assault itself. And when we look at this portion, this is actually where all the troops are going to end up after the British, the 4th Brigade there, the English Grenadiers at the bottom right. That's Those are the forces that are sent into Green's um, rearguard defense. So that's actually where they end up and spend the most, the majority of their time throughout that encampment. You can also see um, in the center, the artillery park is denoted. Uh, that obviously wasn't part of the battle. So we got two different time frames here uh, being depicted. Um, so this is all oddly specific. And so again, we need to ask the question, where is he getting this specific information from? Um, and for that, we are going to also look at the explanation as well. And we're going to look at, um, eventually, the Hessian officer, Werner. Um, but let's take a look at this here first, because this explanation completely changes. It's completely different from Howe's report from London. He's got another source of information that he's getting uh, for the uh, explanation here. So this version reads, the column under General Howe, having crossed at 11 o'clock, the first branch of the Brandywine Creek at, at James Trimble's Ford, halted at A, continued its march at 2 o'clock, crossed the other branch of the creek at B, halted at, at the second time at C. You can see that it is not, uh, you know, it's it's detailed, uh, but it's not using, it. it's taking more advantage of the detail on here um, and, and offering very specific information. Um, now, the one bit of specific information that it's offering, and it's a major error, is this right here. You can see B um, that's on the left-hand side of the engraver's proof. All right, the first, that's the, one of the first things that caught my eye, aside from all the other obvious differences. Uh, this is actually referring to a creek that's known as Radley Run today. Um, if you if you're familiar with that part of the area, uh, that is Radley uh, Run. And um, now, for some reason, 
Faden is using this to depict the second branch of the of the Brandywine, Trimble's Ford. Um, whatever source he's getting his information from, that's telling him that is Jeffrey's Ford. That's the second Ford that General uh, Cornwallis crossed uh, the forks of the Brandywine at um, before he came down and, and launched his assault. Um, that is obviously not the case at all. Um, that is a small creek, uh, nowhere near the size of the the Brandywine River. Um, granted, it would have been shallow, but still wouldn't have been wide enough. Um, but again, this is weird. He's getting his uh, information and it's uh, from somewhere and it's too specific almost. Um, now, when we really look at it, this all stems, as I said, from that Hessian officer, Werner, um, and also another Hessian officer, um, also housed along with Werner's map, uh, the sketch that we looked at before, uh, that comes from the Hessian State Archives in Marburg. This is also uh, in this Hessian State Archives in Marburg. And this is a manuscript map that was produced not only by Werner, but a lieutenant, or excuse me, a Captain Reinhard Jacob Martin, uh, who was the deputy quartermaster in the Hessian forces, who, like Werner, was also attached to Knipphausen's staff. And he came over here with Werner, with uh, von Heister. Now, Martin was one of, if not the top engineer in the Hessian army through 1780. Um, I'll get to that in a second. Martin and Werner came over from Germany together, as I just said. Uh, the two collaborated on several plans throughout their service together. Um, and like Werner, Martin was held in very high regard by Knipphausen and the Landgraf. Uh, from 1776 through 1780, Martin is mentioned several times in, in a series of correspondence between Knipphausen and the Landgraf, um, as, and Martin's maps were and plans were constantly being sent back uh, to the Landgraf, and that made him very, very happy, um, encouraging more plans to be sent over. Now, to go off of that, a lot of people don't give credit to Frederick II of Hesse Castle. Um, a lot of people view him as this tyrant who was just selling his soldiers out uh, for money and wanted nothing to do with the war itself. But on the contrary, he was very, very interested in what was going on in North America, and his letters uh, reflect that. So he's constantly uh, issuing orders, regulations from how the soldiers were to wear the uniform and the conduct when they weren't on campaign. Um, he consistently asked Knipphausen and von Heister to send detailed reports. He was growing anxious when he wasn't getting these reports in a timely fashion when these officers were on campaign. The letters express that. He's like nilly-willy all over the place. Um, but he did appreciate Martin's maps. Um, and he it made him feel like he was there. He said something to the extent of, uh, I am fully placed au courant. So he, he really feels like he's being there at the battle or what he's trying to depict. So um, we see that this is actually made, uh, produced, it's signed April 6th, 1779. Um, so Martin offers a very detailed account. Um, unfortunately, like Werner, he passes away in 1780 from illness. And um, before he dies, he basically hands over everything to his successor who produces um, a map uh, that really just covers 76 through 78. Um, and Knipphausen actually writes to the Landgraf and says, even though Martin's dead, don't worry, we're still going to keep you going with the plans here. I got this guy working on a plan. Um, and this is uh, actually going to be a Lieutenant von uh, Gerencourt. Um, and this is his map right there. It's actually uh, seven feet high by six feet wide. Um, 
yeah, took a lot of time and effort and Knip Housing promised that in the next packet. Probably didn't happen. But this actually went um, in, on 2011 uh, for sale at Christie's. Couldn't find the exact listing, but the article stated that it went from between one to $1.5 million. Uh, so that should make you feel good. Um, but getting back to Mount Martin's map, uh, after learning that date is April 6th, you could be asking yourself, why so late, especially since the Battle of Brandywine was in September of 1777. Um, keep in mind that a detailed map like this would have taken a lot of time. And to give you some perspective, this is a plan that was sent over to the land graph in 78. A lot more detail on the, uh, and this is Martin as well, a lot more detail on the Brandywine. So that's going to take time and energy. And that's what they had in New York when they were stationed at the Morris House from 1778 through 1780. Martin and Werner were serving on Knipphausen's staff at the headquarters. And the, according to Knipphausen's correspondence with the Landgraf, this is when Martin was really pumping these maps out, um, sending maps over and over and going back to uh, the early stages of his time in America. Um, so he's really going to concentrate. So let's really look at the map and compare it to the 1784 map to see exactly what Faden is using. Um, now, looking at the description, every underlined word in this description is from that description on Martin's map. It's all in French, all right? And thanks to a recent translation from Dr. Bob Selig, uh, it was easy to compare and contrast these two. So aside from a few words and sentence structures, this is all Martin's description right here. Um, as you can see, it's pretty much the majority of it, if, you know, again, aside from a few sentences. Um, now, looking at the, going back to Radley Run here, you can see all of a sudden Martin is calling that the second branch. So obviously he was there. He's reputable. He's worked with Montresor. He's worked with all the engineers. It's got to be right, according to Faden. So that's where he gets, that's where that stems from right there. And that was, again, the first telltale sign. Uh, looking at the troop positions, uh, the assault on Birmingham Hill, almost identical. You can see uh, yeah, the Hessian Grenadiers are uh, are labeled over here. You can see um, the Fourth Brigade, the the, uh, the light the light infantry, the Chasseurs. Um, you can see Birmingham Meeting House and how the how the American positions are moved behind there, almost identical to what you see in in Faden's map here. So. Uh, He's, he's really starting to get it right, and you, you can start to see how he's doing it. Um, again, why so specific uh, in the area around Dilworth? Where's the, art, the artillery park? Um, you can see that it's denoted on this map. You can see essentially all the positions here are the same. So again, it's coming straight from this German map. Um, now, the one thing that I have to point out is, and this all ties, this ties it also uh these maps together is there's one serious omission that should have been in there. Um, now you'll see these, these lines right here denote where the Marlboro street road should be. And the Marlboro street road um, is just to the North of where that circled landmark is. So we're going to, like we did for the Birmingham meeting house, that is the Samuel Jones farm. That's the, one of the oldest families in the area. They're there at the time of the battle. Um, the Hessian Jaegers actually take it for a village, all the outbuildings uh, on the farm itself. But um, there's no road there. And that should be there because the British and Hessian forces had to cross to get to Birmingham Hill. Um, and you can see here, that's one of the oldest roads. It predates 1707. So it's hard to miss it. Um, 
so yeah, it's it's just odd that you would not see it on there, and you don't see it on any other maps either. So that that's that's the, the big fault here, uh, uh, even with uh, Martin's map. Um, but this is the final product right here. So with all these similar features on the on on from the fade and takes from Martin, this is the final product. So this is what the engraver's proof turns into, um, and. This is what the, is part of the uh, Society of the Cincinnati's library collections, along with the 1778 map. Um, but there's still one important question that remains is how did Faden get Werner and Martin's maps uh, specifically, you know, again, that, that I'm referring to the, la uh, the latter one that we just looked at, if they each died in 1781 and 1780 respectively. Um, so and why wasn't it produced until 1784? And this is where things get a little hairy. This is this is what I'm currently really working on. Um, so enter this guy. This is Samuel Johannes Holland. And Samuel Holland was a well-known Dutch surveyor who joined the Dutch artillery in 1745, served in the War of Austrian Succession. He emigrated to England in 1754, entered service in the French and Indian War, came over with the Royal Provincial um, Unit the 60th of uh, the 62nd later the 60th regiment of foot served in the in that in North America stayed in North America uh, um, for a brief period before going back to England. Um, but during his time here, he was actually in Canada and he worked with John Montresor uh, to survey uh, the settled areas around the St. Lawrence River. He uh, drew plans for a new citadel in Quebec again with John Montresor. And then he takes these maps and he goes back to London. He lays them before the Board of Trade, along with a proposal to survey all the British possessions um, in North America. And so he is first in 1764 issued as a, uh, as the, uh, commissioned as the surveyor general for the Board of Trade in Quebec. Later, he fills the gap and he is going to take over for the North. Uh, the, he's the surveyor general for the Northern District of North America, which is surveying everything from the Potomac River North. Um, he remained in North America from that point on until 1775 when he fled to England at the outbreak of war. And he comes back over with none other than General Leopold von Heister. And George Germain writes to von Heister and says, this guy speaks German. He's very familiar with the, with the territory. He's very good at surveying and, and doing what he does best. Um, you need to take him with you and you need to give him full protection. And von Heister writes to him. He says, I will, I will comply to the king's uh, wishes and do my utmost to do that. Um, so he is with von Heister. He is on the same boat that Werner and Martin are on when they come over here. He is with von Heister's staff, literally staying in his headquarters. So these three are together a lot um, until March 1777, when Holland was put in command of a new corps named the Corps of Guides and Pioneers, which is uh, an American provincial unit, loyalist race here in America that knew the territory. They were escorting the army when they went on campaign because they were so familiar with the territory. Um, and this was first used in, during the Philadelphia campaign. So you can bet that Holland was there with Montresor, with, with Werner, with Martin. They all, they'd all worked together before. They're working together now, and they're going to keep that going here after the battle uh, when they're scouring the countryside. He continues to serve on Knipphausen's staff up in New York with Werner and Martin as Martin's pumping out these plans until the late spring of 1779. Um, and, and up to that point, there's no doubt he's also helping Martin with these plans. Um, so 
he would have had access like Montresor, um, to, you know, and Martin and Werner's maps. Um, they all were sharing amongst each other. So he goes to Quebec in the late spring of 1779. Um, probably had a copy of this map. Um, so he stays there. He's named to the province's legislative council. He remained in North America until his death, but most notably Holland travels to Great Britain in 1784 and 1787. And he works with William Faden to make this map, a topographical map of the province of New Hampshire in March of, it stayed in March 1st of 1784. So is it a coincidence that a revised map of Brandywine that's based on a plan done by Werner Martin, who worked closely with Holland, who left Knipphausen staff shortly after the plan was done, and who travels to England in 1784 to collaborate on a map with Faden shortly before the Brandywine map is corrected? I don't know. The pieces are fitting together. And I would love to say if it looks like a duck and sounds like a duck, it's probably a duck. But unfortunately, that's not how history works. But uh, as I mentioned before, this has taken me down a winding path. It's still a work in progress. I'm trying to find that link. Unfortunately, there's no mention other than correspondence um, between Knipphausen and other and in the land graph of Martin, Werner or Holland. Um, their experiences aren't documented well. Um, so I may not ever find out, but this is the closest I have to answering this question. Uh, too much of a coincidence. Uh, it's highly probable. But regardless of all that, we can definitively say that up until the Holland question, all the sources are that I, we went over, that's where Faden got his, his corrections, uh, his initial uh, um, influence. Uh, so it's, it's, those are all good, but um, again, the the Holland question is is still has a big question mark on it. And I'm again on a crusade for this. Um, so to conclude, bring it all home. Faden's map depicting the the Battle of Brandywine, that, this 1784, um, is extremely rare, as it doesn't appear in any other collections at any other institution that I've been able to find. Uh, the Royal Map Collection at Windsor Castle that owns a copy of the 1778 map doesn't own this version. In 1845, a reprint of Faden's North American Atlas containing his most popular maps of the Revolutionary War uh, that uses the 1778 map, but it doesn't use the 1784 map. Um, I've had personal discussions with leading map experts, appraisers, collectors. Everyone is familiar with the 78 map, has never seen this map. Um, and one map expert literally told me, you're never going to find, you, you might not ever find the answer. That just bugs me. Um, Kenneth Nebenzall, who is an expert in antiquarian maps, published uh, several bibliographical reference books containing the drafts and engravers proofs um, and similar and said essentially that it's uh, possibly made for an unrecorded copy when he referred to the engravers proof. Um, and finally, in eight, 1981, distinguished historical specialist from the Library of Congress, Dr. John Robert Sellers and his colleague Patricia Van E published a similar bibliographical guide, Maps and Charts of North America and the West Indies, 1750 to 1789, containing notes for all these maps that I just showed you, the drafts and the engraver's proofs, and the one thing that they say about the engraver's proofs, it contains significant changes in true positions, lines of march, and, and, topo and uh, topography. This is also a printer's copy for an edition that was never used. So the million-dollar question now is, if that proof was meant for something that was never issued or recorded, how does the Society of the Cincinnati have one in its library collection, and is it the only one that has been printed by Faden? How many others are there of it out there? Um, the map's provenance, provenance is surprisingly 
um, it originates in my hometown of Kennett Square, uh, where the British staged the night before the Battle of Brandywine. Uh, it was purchased by a DC-based book dealer, and the Society of the Cincinnati purchased it in, in 2018. Um, and unfortunately, I have not yet ascertained the the um, before the the private collector had it. Um, so that investigation continues as well. But with all of this, it's needless to say. The final copy of the 1784 map, uh, with all of its changes, its fascinating history, its its sources in our collections is a very rare and underrated treasure that we're fortunate to have. Um, it not only allows us the ability to compare the two maps uh, that were produced this, by the same maker six years apart, uh, but it also helps us understand the process surrounding the production and the thought process used to create them. But it also teaches us a valuable lesson when dealing with maps from this period. Uh, question everything and never base information off of one individual depiction because you never know what exactly is true or not behind it all. So with that, I will I think I'm way over and I apologize for that. Um, take questions if there are any. Yeah, Andrew, uh, we had a couple questions uh, during yeah. the program and sure. uh, we know folks um, have stayed with us patiently this evening. So we'll yes. just handle Thank a you. few. Um, the first one uh, from Bob comes in, says, um, you state that the 1778 map is not from Montresor, but by Faden, since troops are not static, but move, how do you account for troop movements based on different times? Couldn't Montresor have placed the troops at different times from Faden's sources? So I, I didn't, I, I didn't mean to say that it wasn't Montresor at all. I mean, he, he did, he did, uh, again, the, the topographical uh, features, but if you're looking at the the topographical features like the uh, the positions in front of the meeting house, that hill is behind the meeting house. It wouldn't have been in front. And and so the 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 Americans would have never been that that entire line of the three divisions would have never been that far in front of the meeting house. The, the, the only troops that would have been that far ahead of the meeting house are the third Virginia. Um, and they actually made it to the meeting house wall uh, before falling back to the rest of the line. They wouldn't never have been that far north. And, and the hill itself was not in front of that. Um, now, Montresor, uh, you know, I, I totally agree. The static movement of troops, yes. But the hill, the, the position, you know, it just doesn't make sense uh, when you're following. Even, even if they were moving, they would have never moved from that far in front of the meeting house itself. All right, great. And one last question for you tonight. Um, and you kind of touched on it there towards the end of your presentation. Uh, what other battlefield maps did uh, Faden produce besides Brandywine? Oh, God. Um, there's one. There's a depiction I did with Montresor uh, that was published in October of 1777 of um, Boston. He does one, a uh, few of New York. There's uh, a number from the Southern Campaign. There is one from Yorktown. Uh, Charles Stedman's um, History of the American Revolution that was published in 1794. He does several maps for that. Um, there, are, there are a slew out there. And if you really want to see the extent, we have we have a lot in our library collections. Go to our online catalog and you can see all the fade maps that are on you know, just that we have, there are tons out there. Like I said, there are over 300 um, different maps and manuscripts throughout his career. And most of them stem from the American Revolution. So there are a ton. So I would encourage you to go to the AmericanRevolutionInstitute.org, look at our library collections and search Faden. 
All right, well, thanks again to our presenter this evening, uh, Andrew Outen. Uh, we want to uh, send you guys a little more information before you go to let you know, once again, our next ERW Revelry is on January 22nd uh, in two weeks at 7 p.m. Uh, ERW historian Mark Malloy will have Gene Procknow on to discuss his newest book, William Hunter, Finding Free Speech, A British Soldier's Son Who Became an Early American. And also, again, if you're interested in tickets for our 2023 November bus tour, third annual bus tour, we're headed to the Southern Campaign in the Southern Theater of Charleston. Tickets are going quickly. If you have any questions, please get in touch with us on our social medias uh, or uh, the blog as well. And we'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks again, Andrew, and everyone take Thank care. You. Have a great night. Sorry for going over. Thanks for hanging in there. <laughs> Thanks again.